I invite you to take your copy of the, of the Bible, the Scriptures, or the Pew Bible in front of you, and let us return to 1 Timothy. And this morning we will uh, wrap up this third chapter. And we are in verse 16, and this is part of a section, verse 14 through 16. We'll read this as, as a section, and our focus will be upon verse 16. And we are in the third message, the church, the pillar, and the ground of truth or of the truth. First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself and the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and the ground of the truth. Verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Our Father, we pray for the help of your Spirit now as we study the Scriptures. I pray that you would rest upon me as I speak, and you would help us, each and every one of us, Father, to understand your Word, to grasp it, and to receive it with believing hearts. And so, Father, we pray now that Christ would be glorified and honored, and your Spirit would lead us into the way of truth. For your glory, amen. You may be seated. If you remember, we, as we've been working through this section, verses 14 through 16 have been a central statement for the purpose of the writing of this letter, if you remember. We saw in verse 14 and 15 that first week that Paul speaks of the conduct or the, the manner of, of, of order in the life of the church. You remember that? I write to you though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, in the pillar and ground of the truth. So we saw the, the conduct, the manner of ordered church life. And we discussed how the scriptures give us this. Verse 15, we begin to see the mission of the church by how she is identified in verse 15. The church, as we saw, is a house of God. It speaks of God's house. God who rules over his house. God has given us his instruction in how we are to live in his house. This also relates to us as God's people, that by faith, as we have been united to Christ, we are his adopted people. We are his household. How we are to conduct ourselves, he says, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, and the ground of truth. 
And in that, we saw that as God's people in church, how we have been called out of the world of darkness into his marvelous light. We've seen that as his people, that we stand upon the truth of the apostles and prophets, the, the, the scriptures, and how as God's people and as the New Testament temple, we are to be a light to the world as we hold up the Lord Jesus and proclaim his word. We are to be the pillar and the ground of truth as his people. John Stott, uh, concerning this verse, says that there is a, a double responsibility of the church. A double responsibility for the church that's found here. He says, first, there is its, its foundation, that it's to, its foundation, it's to hold the truth firm. It's to hold the truth firm so it doesn't collapse under the weight of the false teachers. Secondly, he said, as it is a pillar, it's to hold it up high. So it's to hold the truth firm. It's not to collapse under the weight of the false teachers. It's to, as a pillar, to hold up the truth high. It's not to be hidden, but it's to be set forth, proclaimed to the world. To hold the truth firm, Stott says, is to, is to be in the defense of the truth and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel, he says. He says the church is called to both of these ministries. And so as we begin to see in the, in the last few weeks, by this identity, by what he calls us and identifies us as the people of God, the household of God, the family of God, the church, and that which is the the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth, we begin to see who we are, what we are to be, and it speaks of our mission and what we are not called to be. It is primarily a mission, if you remember, a mission of instruction, a mission of teaching. It's primarily a mission of proclamation a mission of proclamation. And we spoke how that mission of teaching and instruction and proclamation, it is generational, just as Paul is teaching and instructing Timothy, the next generation of ministers, and how the scriptures, like this very book, would instruct each generation in the life of the church from 2,000 years ago into now. And so it's generational, And it's global. It's to go to the nations. And this to, it's about to be made clear again. But again and again, what, we, what you will find in the Bible is that when churches hold true, when churches are uh, functioning properly as, uh, as the pillar and the ground of truth, what you will find again and again, it is congregations, local visible congregations that stand upon the word of God and the instruction of God's word. What do you find in the New Testament scriptures is, is a back to the Bible that is a proclamation and instruction of God's word. And even when we think of periods of the history of the church where it appears that much of the visible church has strayed into error when it has, when it has been retreat, when there's been a, a point of retrieval, a return to the truth, like, for instance, the Reformation, it has always been a back-to-the-Bible movement that has taken place. 
And so as God's people, we should realize that as as we, as we are to be the church, as we are to be the pillar and the ground of truth, that which is the source of these things are the scriptures. And so above all else, as we gather for worship, as we gather together, there is to be the instruction of God's word. There's a statement by Luther. Luther said, the great reformer Luther said, the church should never gather apart or without the instruction of the scriptures. Amen. Yesterday, uh, I was at one of my grandson's birthday party and, and Dan Vincent, one of our deacons was there and we were discussing the life of the church and, and how often that we live in an age where many things are confused. The mission of the church, the message of the church, things are confused. And he made the statement. He says, it's so simple that we make it difficult. He didn't realize I put that in my sermon this morning. <laughs> and isn't that true? It is so simple that we make it difficult. It's a back to the Bible. It's the instruction of the scriptures. Now, we've seen the manner of the church, the order of the church, according to the scriptures. We even saw the beginning of chapter 3 all the way unto verse, uh, all the way to verse 13. We saw the instruction concerning the overseers, that is the elders. And then we saw instruction concerning those qualifications for the deacons. And then we begin to see the mission. Again, the, the mission. I'll just share with you this. Pray again, continue to pray for the elders. Continue to pray for the elders, Robert Tolbert, as we consider the future of the church in the sense of how things are getting tight. And if we were to expand this sanctuary, build a sanctuary next to us, again, pray, continue to give. There's resources needed, wisdom that's needed for all of these things. There's, there hasn't been a determinative answer yet, but as we're praying, seeking, trying to discern, determine God's will for the church, I do know this. As, we, as we've asked questions about from a civil engineer, what can we do on this piece of property? As we have begun now to engage an architect, what can we, what can we do here? But what, in this piece of property, what can we do to give us a little more space for our fellowship hall, for our sanctuary? And, and there was a list that I, I was able to hand him this week, the architect. And I said, don't miss it. You, you need to understand who we are. And one of the things was we do not want a sanctuary. We do not want a sanctuary. It should look like a historic place of worship, of Christian worship. And what it should not appear as it should not appear as a theater or a place of entertainment. That is not our mission. That is not our purpose. This is a place of worship. This is a place where the saints gather for fellowship and encouragement, but the instruction of God's word and worship. And so we've seen the manner of the church, verse 14 and 15, the mission of the church, verse 15, and now verse 16, the message of the church, the message of the church. In verse 16, notice this, in verse 16, the apostle declares what is the foundational truth that the church is to be proclaiming. 
This is the truth we are to be proclaiming. Verse 16, the message of the church. This is point three out of these three verses and the third message, the message of the church. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So here in verse 16, we have the basic or foundational elements of the truth that is to be the message of the church. This is the truth that is to be proclaimed and defended by the church because we are to be the pillar and the ground of truth. We are to proclaim it and we are to defend it. So let's begin verse 16 in that opening statement. Notice this verse, this opening statement, the mystery of godliness. A very odd expression, you might be thinking. So let's open up with that. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now you notice that verse 16 is uh, worded a bit different in several uh, translations that you may have. Some have it Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Others have something like, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Or some would say, some versions will say, by common confession. And so what, we're, what we are seeing here, uh, this is a, uh, as the commentators look at that, at, at this section here, and it's sometimes it's, it's, you've noticed it's, it's put together as its own paragraph as if it is a psalm or a hymn or a confession, a confession or a creedal statement. And so most believe that this is some kind of confession of faith, some form of early church creed. Some believe verse 16 in our passage actually functioned as the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed that we confess here today. That later and later, the Apostles' Creed was formed off verse 16. Others believe it was a possible hymn concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A possible hymn. Did you know in the temple of Diana and the city of Ephesus where the, the temple of Diana was, the, the, the temple of Artemis, there was a saying. In fact, you find this in the book of Acts when the apostles were there. The, the people cry out, great is the temple of Diana. Great is the temple of, Di of, 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 um, of um, Artemis or Diana. Great is that temple. Is Paul here turning that on its head and saying, no, not as the great as the temple of Diana, but great is the mystery of godliness, speaking of Christ. Or can you imagine if you were walking in the streets of that pagan city and you could begin to faintly hear coming out of a house, a group of people singing. And they would, they would sing or were chanting and without controversy, 
great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. In any case, we know the church has always been a singing church. We know that the church has, already, has always been a confessing church, confessing the truth. But in any case, whatever the case may be, creed, confession, hymn, poem, whatever the case may be, it is here in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Whatever the case may be, it's Scripture. It's Scripture. And notice that this, this hymn of praise and of confession, this creedal statement that, that Jesus Christ is the foundational and central truth of this statement, of the message of the church. It, 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 actually, it actually revolves around, watch this, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. He who is the scope of all scripture, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Paul calls this, he says, it's without controversy. That is, universally among Christians, this is the common confession. This isn't debated among the people of God. This is without controversy. This is a common confession among God's people. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. This term, mystery, we've seen this before in Paul's writings, mysterion. It's something, something that is not fully understood in the Old Testament. It was there in shadowy form, types, shadows. But now, but now with the coming of Christ, now with the coming of Christ, his person and work and apostolic instruction, proclamation of that truth. These things have been made known and are being made known in the New Testament scriptures. Let me give you just a quick example of this. Uh, look at turn to your Bibles, uh, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter three to give you an example of this. In Ephesians 3, here's an example. And there are many things that are understood as, as a mystery or mysteries that have, were not fully understood, but now are being made plain by the apostles. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for example, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the what? The mystery. The mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understood or understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So this goes back to what he has written previously, not only in other books, but also in this book. If you look over in chapter 2, for instance, in chapter 2, notice verse, for instance, verse 11. Therefore, remember, chapter 2, verse 11 of Ephesians, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, you Gentiles who are called the uncircumcision by the Jews, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the common wealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. And notice that language. It's covenants, plural, of, of promise, singular, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. And here's the hope to the nations. Here's the promise of Abraham. But now, but now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, the Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are separate from God, from the covenants, from the, the hope and promises, from the commonwealth of Israel. But now, but now by the blood of Christ, the nations, the Gentiles, because the seed of Abraham has come, has given himself, the seed of the woman has come, and he's now bringing the nations to himself. Verse 14 Verse 14 of Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who's made both into one, that is Jew and Gentile. He, he has broken down the middle wall of separation. Again, this is temple language, where there was a court of the Gentiles. Now that's been broken down. He, what we have now is Jew and Gentile have full access to God on equal footing because of the Messiah, because of the, the blood of Christ. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So now where there was warring and combat, like we saw in Isaiah 2, now the nations in Christ, in the life of the church, that which separated Jew and Gentile, those, those laws and rituals that made them a separate and distinct people, now Jew and Gentile have been brought together and there is peace now in the body of Christ, this one new man that Paul will speak as the ecclesia, the church, Jew and Gentile. Verse 16, and he might reconcile them both to God and one body through the cross, thereby putting to death enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Notice verse 19. Now therefore, now therefore, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that what we saw in verse 15? 
members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So where is the household of God? Where is the temple of God? Where is it today? It is wherever the people of God gather. It is the church, the ecclesia, among the nations, in places like Ephesus and Rome and Thessalonica and Warrington. Wherever we gather together, Jew or Gentile, we are now reconciled with God and with one another in Christ. And Paul says that is a great mystery. They didn't fully understand that. But now it's made known in Christ. And this godliness, that is the truth now. The mystery of godliness, back to verse 16 in, in our passage in 1 Timothy. This mystery of godliness, this godliness is the truth of salvation in Christ. The truth of salvation in Christ for Jew and Gentile. The truth of the salvation in Christ that not only are we justified in Christ and declared not guilty and reconciled to God and one another, but now there is by the Spirit and Word a working that's transforming us, renewing us into the image of the Son, a sanctifying work that we are now set apart as a holy people of God. Godliness. And so it's this gospel this salvation in Christ that has a life-transforming effect upon the people of God. We are his new creation, and it now is transforming us into godly living, godliness. Later in this very letter, you see an example of this. Watch this. If you turn over to chapter 6, we'll eventually get there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, notice verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But you, he's speaking to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, and fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. And notice this, and have confessed, and have confessed this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He goes on, look at verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who's a witness, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he says, who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Amen. Ah. So, with all that being said, here is the mystery without controversy, by common confession, is this mystery of godliness. And this is rooted and grounded foundationally in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what we are seeing here, what proceeds in this verse, moving forward now, watch this. There is a series of three couplets, 
A couplet is, is two lines, like in a verse of a, of a hymn or a poem or a creed. And again, understand that these are truths concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's begin now. Let's begin to look at this hymn of, of, of exaltation, this hymn uh, concerning, this, uh, concerning the person and work of Christ. The first thing he says in verse 16 And there's six of these, but the first one, number one, God was manifested in the flesh. Again, some of your translations have God was manifested in the flesh. Others have uh, he was he was manifest, manifested in the flesh. A letter different. Theos. Hos, the theta needs to be there. He or God. Now, let me just say this. Talking about the, the text here. We can all agree that if you know your Bible, it is obvious whether he or God. At the beginning of this first line, if you know your Bible, you know who this is talking about. It's not talking about Paul. It's not talking about the devil. It's not talking about an angel. It's not talking about Isaiah. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus. God was manifested in the flesh. Now listen closely. Jesus Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternally begotten Son of God who came into the world, who was born of the Virgin Mary, and thereby took on, by his birth to the Virgin Mary, thereby he took on human flesh. You remember the language of verse 15 of chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 15. Notice the language there. This is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus, what's the next word? Came. Came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. This very first line is highlighting the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-man. Jesus was not just another kind man or a good teacher like others before him. No, there is a uniqueness, a uniqueness about his person. Jesus, unlike any other teacher or man before or after him, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Remember the words of John's gospel, John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared Him. And some of you know that word declare, we get the word uh, exegesis from. He, he, he is the reading out of God. The explanation of God. God was manifested 
in the flesh, the text says. And this directs our attention, first of all, to the divinity of Jesus and his, secondly, we'll see his humanity. He was manifested. That is, the invisible God was made visible in the person of the Son and his coming. One, concerning his divinity. Again, Jesus stands apart from all other religious teachers and that he is the eternal God. Jesus as the Son, again, is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is of one substance and equal with the Father. Jesus was begotten of the Father before all ages. Jesus is light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Here, this idea that he was manifested in the flesh, this speaks of the pre-existence of the Son of God who came into the world. Listen again to John, the Apostle John, in his gospel, in those opening verses. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, if you move through that section, you get to verse 14, and John 1 says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as the only, only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God, or he, was manifested in the flesh, speaks of the divinity of Jesus, but also of his humanity, concerning his humanity. He was manifested in the flesh. Here, this speaks of his humanity. It speaks of his incarnation, not in not, he's not speaking of sinful flesh, but in human flesh with all of its essential properties. You say, what does that mean? All of his essential properties. This means when Jesus was conceived and was born of the Virgin Mary, he was clothed in humanity and that he was flesh and blood. And he took upon himself human nature and all of its infirmities according to, his, according to his humanity. Catch this, according to his humanity, he needed oxygen to survive. He needed food. He needed water. He needed sleep. And all of this meant he could die. He was like us in every way, but without sin. Again, listen to the teachings of the scriptures. Paul would write in Galatians 4, 4, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Do you hear that? Hebrews 4.14. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then 
that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we, verse 15, do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without, what does he say? Sin. So he is the God-man. God was manifested in the flesh. Secondly, notice verse 16 again. You might think this is odd language. He's justified in the spirit. Or some of your translations will say something like, he was justified or vindicated in the spirit. Again, these are couplets. So the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes into the world and he's manifested. He, the invisible God now is made manifest in the person of the Son, born of the Virgin Mary. And now he's saying, and with that, the coming of the God-man, he's, he's justified, vindicated in the Spirit. Now, again, this speaks, this speaks of not only the holy life of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, but it also speaks of his resurrection. Jesus was condemned by the Jews and the Gentiles, crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was falsely accused. He was condemned as one declared guilty by wicked men, the scripture tells us. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, verse 24, whom God raised, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That is, Jesus was condemned to death by wicked men, and yet he was not worthy of death because he was sinless. He was not guilty. To declare that he was indeed the sinless son, God raised him from the dead, and it was a, a universal, a, a, a global vindication he was justified, declared not guilty by God raising him from the dead. Resurrection. The resurrection is this global, universal declaration that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The other great religious leaders and teachers are dead in their graves. The tomb of Jesus is empty. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul's making this very point. Listen to this. Romans 1, verse 1, all the way to verse 5. This is a wonderful passage right here. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now watch this, verse 2. Which he promised, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This was part of the mystery. That's now made, it's now making, being made clear and has been made clear through the coming of Christ and now the, the, the exposition of the, the apostles, the, the teaching of apostolic doctrine through the New Testament. He had promised this through his, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, notice this, who was born, notice the language here, 
we're going to see this again. Born the seed of David, according to the flesh. That is, he was born of the offspring of David. That is, there is this link now that he is the, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's of the offspring of David. Watch this. Verse 4. Verse 4 now. And declared, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so the one who was the seed of David was put to death, but God has vindicated him. God has justified him in the sense that he has declared him to be the son of God, the sinless son of God, and he's raised him with power according to the spirit of holiness. And through him, Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, he says, among the nations for his name. You see that? Number three, verse 16 of our text. First Timothy 3, verse 16 says he was, next it says he was seen by angels. Again, it sounds rather odd. Seen by angels. The, the thought here is there is a heavenly witness, an angelic witness to this. The angels announced his birth, did they not? They ministered to him throughout his life, didn't they? They were present at the tomb. You remember that? And they gave testimony of the resurrection. And now they surround his throne and worship him. Consider that. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, in Luke's gospel concerning the coming and the birth of Christ, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And so he was seen by angels. There's a heavenly angelic witness from his birth to his life, his tomb, and to now. They were even at his ascension. But now they are surrounding his throne in worship. Number four, verse 16 again. Number four, the apostle says he was preached among the Gentiles. Or that could be translated, preached among the nations, as some of your Bibles will say. This now speaks of the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. This is the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. This is that which is the mission of the church, is the pillar and the ground of truth. This is the mission of the church, is to take this good news to all the nations and make disciples. This is what we call the commission, the great commission. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, All authority.
authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is the global proclamation of the gospel, which the Ephesians are a result of that, of Paul going as an apostle to the city of Ephesus and preaching the gospel to them. And there a church is established. Next, verse 16, he says, believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Notice that. There, what we have there is the success of the gospel going to the nations. The success of the gospel going to the nations. The Gentiles, the nations, have come to know Christ savingly. And they worship him in congregations all over the world. And it's spreading, and it's growing, and it's advancing. In Psalm 86, 9, listen to this, Psalm 86, 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. Did you hear that? That's what we saw in Psalm in, in Isaiah 2. Now it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 2.2. We see this finding as you move through the Bible, you get to the, the end of the book, the Revelation, and you find in Revelation 15, verse 3, and they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, Almighty, just and true are your works, O King of the saints. Verse 4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For the nations, all nations, shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And so what we find here is the success of the global mission of the church. This gospel, Matthew 24, this gospel will be preached to all the nations. Not maybe, will be. Verse number six, verse 16. Here's the last one. We're running out of time here. Verse 16. He says, received up in glory. Received up in glory. This speaks, listen, saints, of his ascension and exaltation at the right hand side of the Father. The Son, he who was manifested in the flesh, who was justified in the, by the Spirit or in the Spirit, vindicated. He was raised from the dead and raised up to heaven, exalted at the right-hand side of the Father. Listen closely. The seed of the woman, 
I keep emphasizing this point. I want you to see that movement through the Bible. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3. The seed of Abraham. Listen to what Paul says. Not to seeds as many, but to the seed, Christ. The seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The seed of David. Now sits upon the everlasting throne of David. And he rules and he reigns as the exalted son of God. What did he tell us? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Is there any doubt the great commission will be completed? Is there any doubt that the nation shall come before him and worship him? I shall be with you even to the end of the age. This lifelong mission, this mission to reach the nations, generations after generation, to reach the nations, shall come to its completed end. He shall have the nations under his feet. They shall come to him by his sovereign grace and power. He rules and reigns as the exalted son of God. Second Samuel seven, listen to this. And the Davidic covenant, listen to the language. Listen to the language. Second Samuel seven, beginning verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There's one greater than David he's speaking of. There's one greater than Solomon he's speaking of here. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. I shall build my church and the gates, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is that last great kingdom that Daniel spoke of. He's received up in glory. This is his ascension and exaltation at the right hand of God. Now, we've moved through this the last number of weeks. We've seen the manner of life, how we are to conduct ourselves in the life of the church. It is found in Holy Scripture. Leadership, worship, the life of the church is found and given to us in the instruction of the Scriptures. We've seen the mission of the church by our very identity, who we are to be. The pillar and the ground of truth it's primarily a mission, a proclamation here in the assembly and out into the world. And now we see the mission, the message of this mission is found here in verse 16. And it revolves around Christ, his person, the God man, his work, 
redeeming sinners in reaching the world. We have received, we are to receive this truth that we have heard. We are to embrace it by faith. We are to proclaim it generationally and globally. And when needed, which is quite often, we are to defend it. We are to defend it. And so this is the message that we have received, the message of Christ. This morning we come to the table and we're reminded of this message, the one who was manifested in the flesh. We see it in the bread, the broken bread, the life that was given for us. We see it in the cup, the wine, the shedding of his blood, the cup of God's wrath that he drank for us. And as God's people, by faith, we have received this glorious gospel message. And, and now by faith, we outwardly, in this act of worship, we eat the bread, we drink the cup by faith. And there by it, the word concerning it, the promises, the blessings we receive by faith. And so this morning, the word that we've heard, again, let us believe it. Let us be a people that would leave this place and proclaim it. Let us be faithful to proclaim it here. And let us go out into the world and in this place faithfully defend it. If you're here this morning apart from Christ, you've never embraced him as Lord and Savior. This morning, turn from your sins. Turn from your wayward life from God. Your rebellion to God. Repent of that way of life and turn to the one that God has sent, his son, the God-man. Turn to the son who died on the cross for sinners like you and like me and shed his blood that our sins may be washed away. That you may be saved. The one who was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead and him is eternal life. Come to him. Embrace him by faith. Let us pray.